0: And you know, when we look at these texts, when we look at the Gospels, we look at the Book of Acts, even when we look in the Old Testament full of miracles, there really has been, in the last couple centuries, two ways of viewing these things. Increasingly, getting more and more popular is the notion that this stuff didn't really happen per se, that it's all spiritual, it's all metaphorical, it's all symbolism, and obviously, we like the truth that we find in here. We like the Jesus of Nazareth this human man with all these great human ethics that we discover, but come on, donkeys don't talk, and you know, loaves and fish don't multiply, and certainly no one is raised from the dead, blind people aren't given their sight, that sort of thing. The other way of viewing it is that these things truly did happen, that, that this is where our hope lies, not in just some ethereal teaching, but in what Jesus Christ did. That he died on a cross and in doing so bore the sin of the world on his shoulders Took the wrath of God meant for us because of our sin and because of the grace and love and mercy of God Paid the debt that we owed and then to show that God accepted that payment. He walked out of the tomb on the third day I think both of these views should be accepted these things happened But because the Bible is a supernatural document, even in the historical events, we find beautiful spiritual teaching. I've mentioned before that I believe every single one of those healing stories in the Gospels, as we went through the Gospel of Luke, yeah, moons and moons ago now, but it was, it, was, it was fresh in my mind as I've been reading through Acts. As we go through that gospel, we see again and again, Jesus chooses to heal people where that is a picture for us of what he does spiritually for us. So someone's blind, and he gives him sight. Someone is paralyzed, and he says, take up your bed and walk. Someone's dead, and this is probably the greatest picture for us of what Jesus does spiritually. And he says, little girl, arise. Kuma. Get up. Walk. And there, suddenly we go, wow, Jesus is able to do that. For someone like me, I once was blind, but now I see. I once was lost, but now I am found. I once was dead in my sins and trespasses, and this Jesus is powerful enough to bring me to life. And we see that in the book of Acts. I do believe where there are miracles and signs and wonders, they point us to what Jesus came to do. The The point of the miracle is never the miracle itself. It's to gather people in a way where their attention is focused on the person and work of Jesus Christ. We see that nowhere more clearly than here in Acts chapter 3. We read, as we looked at uh, Acts chapter 2, about everyday life in the church awe came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles during this apostolic age there were many signs and wonders miracles were happening and people were in awe and now we have an example of just one of those miracles this man who was begging who could not stand on his own two legs who is healed what's happening here is they're going to the temple which again we were told in chapter 2 they did it regularly for prayer for for discussion and apostles teaching and as they're going they're going at one of the prescribed times which is the ninth hour 3 p.m. the way we work time and there were set hours designated hours throughout the day in the Jewish temple for prayer and this is just one of them but it seems that perhaps they're already starting to take this old uh, wine skin that was the economy of grace in the Old Testament and they're retrofitting it for following Christ. What's significant about 3 p.m., the ninth hour? Well, it was at the very ninth hour that Jesus cried out, it is finished, and gave up the ghost. And the rocks did rent, and all of the earth shook, and the temple curtain was ripped in half, top to bottom. I wonder if they'd replaced that yet by this point. Not quite two months later. All this is fresh in their minds. Remember that. So we have another character, though, and that is a beggar who sits at the temple gate that is called the beautiful gate. Or actually, it just says begging at the temple gate called beautiful. Hey, I'll meet you at beautiful. And he is there. He is someone who regularly would be begging for alms. Alms is the giving of aid to the poor for some sort of spiritual merit to your own soul a good thing to do, to give to the poor. Jesus emphasizes that. The New Testament emphasizes that. But this guy, he can't walk. He's got some good friends because they've got him a good spot. He's right by this gate. Not only does that mean that it's a high-traffic area, but it also means that the people who walk by are on their way to go in and worship, and that's a good time to catch them. Because all of the documentation we have, all of the, the oral tradition put down later on with pen and parchment tells us that they believed that giving to the poor would make them more presentable to God. And so he's there saying, hey, last chance before you walk into the temple to score a few more points. It's a great idea. Now, to picture this, you got to realize there's a reason they called this gate beautiful. I was in Jerusalem, did you know that? And I saw some of the reconstructed gates and they were gorgeous, but they were not overlaid with the precious metals like they were at that time. We we don't have the uh, description of a gate called beautiful. It must be a nickname for it uh, in the Old Testament. But Josephus, at just about this time, describes it thus. It was 75 feet high. 60 feet wide, and it was covered in beautiful carved brass. But the beauty and intricacy of the workmanship on this gate made it more beautiful and more valuable than even the gates that were covered over in silver and gold. Everyone wanted, if if you had a selfie when you visited Jerusalem at that time, if they had that technology, everyone would go to the beautiful gate and get one. If you, you say, I, I went to Jerusalem for the first time, and someone said, oh my goodness, what did you think of this? And that, one of the first things they would say is, you got to the beautiful gate, right? Now imagine that enormous, beautiful thing and the juxtaposition of this man slumped against that wall in rags, begging. Probably had some kind of receptacle for people to put money in. Probably trying to look like he needed it, because that's how begging works. And as they walk by, he gets his hopes up because Peter and John they're walking in and they say to this guy they look at him and they say look at us hey look at us this is going to raise his spirits his his eyes his countenance lifts why because it is the universal behavior of everyone through time and place that if you're passing someone who is begging and you're not going to give them money you don't look at them and you certainly don't tell them to look at you hey look at you and then you walk right by i mean unless you're a really big jerk And so they say, look at us. Yeah, yeah. And it tells us he thought he was going to get something. He didn't know quite what he was going to get. But he thought he was going to get something. And then the first words Peter speaks undoubtedly caused his face to fall again. Silver and gold. Yeah, yeah. Have I none? Oh. It's like whenever I'm downtown, somebody says, hey, can I have uh, a few bucks? And if I'm not thinking, I always leave, I say, I'm sorry, I don't carry cash. I use my, I'm I use my debit card for like Tic Tacs, 19 cents. And and so, you know, I know what it looks like when you tell someone, no, well, sure you don't. Sure you don't have money. You just don't want to give it to me. There's this pregnant moment. Silver and gold have I none, but what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, stand and walk. And what's beautiful is you read this description And you you see Dr. Luke's fingerprints all over this. Very technical, very vivid description of what's going on. You know, when you look at the Greek, uh, the the words are often kind of vague that are used for parts of the body. Uh, The word care, it means hand. And yet there's this debate, did Jesus uh, get nailed to the cross through his palm or through his wrist or kind of through both? Because the word, it means like the whole thing, the fingers, the palm, the wrist, all of it. And, and the foot, padas, where we get podiatry, right? The ankle, the toes, the heel, the, the... What do you call this part in the middle? Come on. The arch. I almost said the crown. Uh, whatever. The whole, thi- the whole thing is the, the, the pus or the padas. And yet, when he describes what happens, it's this very technical strength went down into. And he uses this word basis, which is where we get the word basis. You know, the thing that you stand... It means like the heel, the bottom of the foot strengthened his basis there and then he uses a word for ankle that i don't even know i've never even seen it before it seems to be probably kind of a medical term he describes how god strengthened those things because that was the problem and then the man stood and his legs and his feet and his ankles could bear his weight and suddenly he starts walking and then as he tries it out he starts walking a little more and then you know what happens next he starts leaping For joy, leaping for joy. And the people who are gathered, they see him and they recognize him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms, and they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. Peter says, sounds like a great opportunity for, you know what? A sermon. He used to be like, draw the sword, cut off the ear, that was his go to move. Now it's preach a sermon. Any chance I get. We saw it in chapter 2. People were gathered around going, why am I hearing stuff in my own language? Who's? And he said, all right, come around, we'll talk. Now people are gathered because of this miracle. Gather around, everybody, let's talk. And notice he immediately disavows any power native to himself. No, 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 why are you looking at us as if me and Johnny here had the power to heal him? That's not right, it didn't come from us. He rejects their praise and their awe and their adoration and he immediately points it instead to God and through Jesus Christ. What a waste, by the way. He could have gotten so many new Twitter followers (laughs) using this. He would not fit in now, right? He could have increased his platform and people would have thought much of him, but he doesn't. He is focused completely on Christ. There's a a lot of made-up words in the world today, but there's one that I like a lot, and that's Christocentric. Centered on Jesus, pointed toward jesus oriented toward jesus christ and that is peter i almost said to a fault but it's no fault that is peter to the very end back to the very end when he's crucified so the sermon does not put the spotlight on peter as the great miracle worker or on this beggar as the man who now has a wonderful uh, testimony that he can share although undoubtedly he would go on to share it and give glory to God. No, it puts it instead the spotlight firmly on Jesus Christ. Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. Notice here a couple things before we get to that downer. That he's called Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Remember I talked about those two ways of viewing him? The Jesus seminar out there saying we have to separate the historical Jesus of Nazareth from the mythical Jesus Christ. Oh yeah? Eight weeks after Jesus walked out of the tomb, the leader of the church was calling him Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Smooshing those together. We can't make a separation. Jesus of Nazareth is the Christ, the same who walked the earth and did miracles and taught and and made a great controversy to the point where he was put to death unjustly. He, He goes to the Old Testament and he does it so deftly and so skillfully. He actually quotes Deuteronomy 18. Where, if you look in verse 22, this is where he does where, where uh, Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. So he, he says, this, this is Jesus. Moses was saying, A guy's going to come after me, only greater than me. He's going to be the kind of guy who talks to God face to face, and you need to listen to him. If you don't listen to him, what happens? He will reject you. And then he, he points to Genesis 12:1 to 3, that promise. To Abraham, through you, I will bless the whole world. I'll bless those who bless you. I'll curse those who curse you. And through you, all the peoples on earth will be blessed. And he says, who is he talking about? Once again, Jesus. The whole Old Testament is about Jesus. In fact, twice he says that all the prophets, meaning the whole Old Testament, were giving witness, bearing witness to Jesus. This Jesus whom they have just put to death. And then in verse 16, he says, by his name. His name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given this man the perfect health in the presence of you all. You want to know how powerful faith in Jesus is? Look at this guy whom you used to try not to look at while you walked into the temple. Look at him and see what God does through Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus is the good news. The person and work of of Jesus Christ is the gospel parse it all out, how we would word it. And that's important, I guess, but it's possible to love the doctrine and all the, the dotting the I's and crossing the T's and all this stuff. It's possible to love his ethics and, and the idea of being kind and forgiving. It's, it's possible to love all the trappings of church. It's possible to, to love mobilizing a so-called Christian voting block and do all these things without knowing Jesus. And that's what matters. Do You know him. At the end many will say, "Lord, Lord, I even did miracles in your name. You you and I are boys. We we I I told everyone about you. I did depart from me. I never knew you." Do you know Jesus today? Well, that's what Peter wants to make sure for all of his hearers that they will know Jesus. And it's a unified picture that he paints of who Jesus is and what he came to do. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant jesus what is that going to make everybody in that crowd think they're in the temple they're thinking about the old testament the tanakh as they as we call it sometimes the the, the writings the prophets the law and when they hear servant they go boom isaiah 52 and 53 the suffering servant then he calls them the righteous one and their their minds go right back again to isaiah 52 and 53 what do we find there We find these passages like this. Surely he was born our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And by his stripes we are healed. He's pointing all of the Bible right at Jesus and saying, if you line it up this way, it makes sense. Similar to what will happen in chapter 5, by the way, with Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. But, so, back to the thing where he starts talking about their sin. He, he, he lifts up Jesus, and in the same breath, as he's saying that he is he's the holy and righteous one, he is the glorified servant, he is the, the one who was uh, glorified through the God of our fathers, whom you delivered and denied in the presence of Pilate, when we had decided to release him. But you denied the Holy and Righteous One and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And in verse 16, and his name, by faith in his name, has this man been made strong. So he goes right, it takes him one sentence to get right to sin. And he says, you guys have sinned and our sinners all of you how unpopular and really he's just been kind of flattered by the fact that they're all coming around him and looking at him with awe anyone ever looked at you with awe happens to me all the time i'm kidding i i, I think it happened once and then they were like no it's just gas don't worry but the the idea of some, all this 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 whole crowd wow that could tug the, the enemy could get a hold of that maybe soften the message Maybe flatter them a little bit and they'll flatter you. <laughs> not Peter. No, they're lucky he hasn't chopped anyone's ear off so far. Peter's not doing this. He goes right to the fact that they have sinned and they need Jesus Christ. I was, I was looking over this sermon last night. I stopped and checked my Twitter because I don't know. and. I saw Mark Driscoll, Pastor Mark Driscoll, posted this right at that moment. When the church stops talking about sin, it becomes about as helpful as a hospital that stops talking about sickness. That'll preach. When the church stops talking about sin, it becomes about as helpful as a hospital that stops talking about sickness, which, by the way, he totally yoinked from Jesus, but that's okay. And I'll tell you, Peter gets into this, and he, once he gets started... It's fire and brimstone. It's the kind of stuff, if I preached like this week after week, there'd be little emergency meetings. What happened with Pastor Zach? Why is he so mad lately? He thought he was harsh in the Pentecost sermon when he said, you put him to death with the help of wicked men? Oh, this goes ten steps beyond that. And, And remember, Peter is a sinner. No doubt about it. And yet, he doesn't say, we did this. When he preaches and he's trying to convict the sinner, he says, you. You in the plural. Second person plural. And and it's not just one little thing. You guys have a problem and you need help. No, you did this. You denied him in the presence of Pilate. You denied the Holy and Righteous One. He says you denied him twice. You asked for a murderer to be granted to you and you killed the author of life. You did this. You know, I'm I very regularly read a book called Preaching with Freshness. I find it to be invigorating for me. It's by Bruce Mahinney. And there's a, a section where he talks about this pastor who always felt weird about ever saying you. So he always said we. And he preached a sermon about theft and some honesty. And, and he said, you know, you know, sometimes we cheat on our taxes. And he went on and on and on about this. And then a rumor started circulating in the church. Our pastor cheats on his taxes. That's not Okay. <laughs> And and Mahini says, hey, sometimes you have to say you. It's what the prophets did. And honestly, when we are sharing the gospel, yeah, you want to acknowledge I'm not 10 steps above you, righteous by my own merit. But remember, if you've put your faith in Jesus, your sins are washed away. You, you too need to do this. You need to put your faith in Jesus. See, Peter's repented. And he's preaching here to people who have not yet repented and calling them to repent So he doesn't soften it. He doesn't sugarcoat it. He doesn't make it sound like something else. We've screwed up, everyone. Mistakes were made. And Jesus can give us a mulligan. No. On one level, when he says you, he's actually talking literally to the people who did this. The crowd that shouted crucify him. He's in the temple. Some of the people who cast their votes that said yes, let's put him to death are probably in earshot. And yet at the same time, we all do bear the guilt of that. Remember that CD case that I had last week and I showed the kids? I found the CD this week. Somebody was praying to St. Anthony or something. And I popped it in and I was listening to it with all its 90s horns and everything. And there's a line in it. It says, My sins shout crucify louder than the mob that day. <sighs> My sins shout crucify louder than any mouth. And you say, yeah, sure, okay, but I wasn't really there. And when I sinned, you know, even those people, they didn't know what they were doing. And, and before someone brought me the gospel and broke my heart with the law, I didn't know what I was doing. Ignorance of the law, it has got to be a, a, good, a good defense, right? That works in the courts, right? Right? Anybody hear about this woman in Florida last week? She was picking up conch shells. She said, oh, this is cute. You know, like those are the really pretty ones, right? Then she said, oh, I have about 6,000 friends who would want one of these. Went to Walmart, bought three big tubs. She's grabbing them. They still have the living thing inside them, sadly. She's just throwing them in. Someone saw her. That's illegal. Called the cops. This person's on vacation from Texas. Now, 15 days in a Florida jail, $500 fine. And she's going, I didn't know it was against the law. And the judge says, sorry, it's against the law. You not knowing doesn't change anything. Now notice that Peter brings up their ignorance. And now, brothers and sisters, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that this Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. I know you did it out of ignorance. And today, you know, many people, our culture is constantly, like I was talking about with the kids, telling us, up is down and right is wrong all the time. By the way, the scriptures say, woe to him who says that evil is good and calls good evil. But but many things around us, all the input often says, oh no, go the opposite way, go on the wide road, the broad road that leads to destruction. I didn't know. Well, Romans 1 says we are without excuse. Romans 1 tells us, by the way, that we did know. We just suppressed and distorted the knowledge that we have inherent from God the Father and also the knowledge we have of God from the world around us, the natural world. We we remember in in, uh, Acts 17, we'll see Paul stand up in the Areopagus and talk to the the minds, the great minds of, of Athens, and he says to them, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. And by the way, that's right about where he lost them. And many began to mock and laugh. Some said, interesting, I'll hear him again. And some believed. It's always what happens. Peter acknowledges their ignorance in crucifying Christ and then reaffirms their guilt. Or as Charles Haddon Spurgeon would say, he makes them feel their sin. Because only when you feel your sin and are convicted of your sin... Do you turn from your sin to a Savior? A message that says, I will offer salvation and life without mentioning your sin is always going to fall flat on its face. It's always going to turn to something else. I'm going to offer you wealth and prosperity, or I'm going to offer you self-actualization, or I'm going to offer you a way to feel better all the time. It's never going to be truly what Jesus came to do because what, what, what held Jesus there on the cross? I've heard it said, the love for us, okay, but also my sin, that's why his love needed to put him there in the first place. So he starts, by the way, with our sins, but does not end with our sins. Not mentioning sin is not going to bring you to the gospel. Overemphasizing you are a sinner and you're bad news and you're garbage. That's also not going to lead to a salvation message that people will hear. And apart from something miraculous, uh, changing your words in their mind, it's, it's going to lead them down a road to just despair. So, So if you look at verse 15, yes, you killed the author of life. You killed, God raised, we are witnesses. So what then should we do? Verse 19, repent therefore and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus. Now Peter is in a great position to make this call to repentance because he really blazed the trail. I mentioned that earlier, he twice said, you disowned him. You disowned him. Or in the ESV, it says you denied him. Twice, you denied him. And Peter's over here going, You're, you've sinned, but your sin is JV. I denied him three times. And yet, he still welcomed me back with open arms because of what he did for me on the cross. I disowned him three times over, once with an oath, And a curse. Tells them to repent. Why? Why repent? He gives them reasons. First of all, so your sins will be wiped away. How how much more do we need than that? No one knows, by the way, your sins. But maybe you and God, what you've done, why you've done it, what you've thought, what you've wanted to do. If we knew those things about you, we'd probably give you a wide berth. And the other way around. You know, but you might not even know all your sins. Oh, that was all right. I was justified in that. We play these games with ourselves. God knows the depth of your sin, and he wipes it away when we repent. Wipe away your sins. Clean slate. Whew. Yeah, but not me, Pastor. My sins are really bad. You don't know my past. I'm, I'm a bad hombre. I've got, I've got stuff back there. I don't even think about it when I lie in bed awake at night. Oh, yeah? Did you... Literally, scream crucify him on that good Friday? Did you literally put the nails in his hands? Did, were you in that Sanhedrin meeting that said it's better for one man to die for everyone than for the whole nation to suffer? Well, no. And yet these are the people Peter's talking to. And as he talks to them, he says, he came first to you. He came to, you. he said, who are the, well, these guys, they're they're kind of the the worst. They they put me to death. I'm going to go first to them, and I'm going to bring the offer of life. And not only that, wiping away your sins so that you're clean in God's sight, and you don't feel clean, but no, 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 times of refreshing. I wish I had a whole, maybe I'll take a whole sermon next week to talk about this. Maybe you need this right now. This isn't talking about some future messianic era that hasn't come yet. This is talking about the life of the Christian. Times of refreshing, coming from the Holy Spirit. When when you feel that you're just weak and beat down and, and sluggish spiritually, and you don't have the fire anymore, he comes and he brings fresh wind, fresh fire, so that it will burn brighter and refreshes us. Verse 19, repent and turn to God. That sounds redundant. But remember, repentance in the New Testament, the word literally means a change of mind. Not like how you change your mind and then you change it back and you change it again. Right, I often do that. I like this. No, I don't like it. Oh, I'm really going to get up early and I'm going to ride my bike every day. (laughs) No, I'm not. Snooze. No, a change of mind that happens to you. A transforming of your mind which, if genuine, will manifest itself in a transforming of your life, a deep change in which you hate what you used to love and love what you used to hate. You hate sin, and instead of running to it, you run from it and run to Christ. Then, instead of saying, give us Barabbas. We don't want that guy. You say, I'll take Jesus every time. It's good for us to respond to Jesus with a lot of emotion and excitement and zeal, that's good, even in a Baptist church. We permit it. It's good to leap for joy like this man does. And by the way, a leaping, a leaping cripple, what a perfect picture of the church. Am I right? But you know, I just talked to my old pastor, my old mentor uh, from, from Grand Rapids, Dr. Ed Pikey. And he's, he's older and folksier than ever. He's in his, his mid or late 80s. And I was remembering some of the things he used to say. One of the things he used to say is, it doesn't matter how high you jump. What matters is what direction you're pointing when you land, right? You can can respond with all sorts of zeal and excitement right off the bat, like the the seed that falls on the thorny ground and immediately, wow, look, there's an awful lot going on here. But then it sucks away the nutrients, the thorns around them, or the rocky soil blocks the roots, and, and there's not fruit born. That's not what peter wants for these people and that's not what he calls them to do repent and turn to god flee to him have a change of mind but also a change of direction the direction matters you ever hear about the the guy who was he was driving through pennsylvania and he got turned around a little bit he knew he was getting close so he pulled over and he asked a gentleman by the side of the road how far it was to phillipsburg new jersey And the guy said, well, the way you're going, it's about uh, 24,895 miles. But you turn around and get back on uh, Route 20, and it's about five miles. If you're going the wrong way, you can punch the gas all you want, but it won't get where you want to go. So we hope and we pray and we trust that this leper, or rather this crippled man who, who was healed and jumped for joy, continued to follow Jesus. We don't know but we trust. There's a a story that's possibly apocryphal, told about Thomas Aquinas, that he was visiting uh, the the Pope, Pope Innocent II at one point, and and, uh, when he walked in, there were uh, many treasurers in the room and they were counting gold, and they were counting their wealth that was kind of inventorying things. And he said, well, Brother Thomas, we can no longer say in the church, as Peter did, silver or gold, have we none? And the story says that Aquinas answered, Sadly no, and we can neither say stand and walk in the name of Jesus Christ. We have to be people who don't seek after worldly mammon. You cannot serve two masters. And when we think about what will get us to jump up and get going, it must be Jesus Christ. And when we think about what we can give, when someone says to us, "Can you help me? Can you get You can only give, you can only impart what you have." I don't have the gift of healing. To give you back the ability to walk if you don't have it how many times i've wished i had walking through hospitals if i if i could i'd I'd spend all my time there healing everyone but i don't have it but you know they imparted more than that they imparted yes healing but they imparted the, the power of faith in jesus christ by showing this is how powerful it is and that man undoubtedly responding in kind they imparted joy They imparted joy because this guy gets up and he's jumping around, he's laughing, he's dancing like he never could before. And you know, if our presentation of the gospel ends with sin or focuses on sin and then just quickly says, yeah, but Jesus died for you, that doesn't impart joy. That imparts the sort of heavy crushing yoke of the law that the Pharisees imparted. We have to, when we bring the gospel, bring it with joy. Not not cut corners, not 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 wear off the sharp edge of the gospel and get this word sin out of there and call them oopsies or something. No, we want to bring it the way the scriptures bring it, but it must be good news, good news of great joy. We have that to impart, and yet every time I talk about this, I often think, I wonder, I wonder if people hear about how we ought to bring the gospel and don't realize that we ought to bring the gospel. Or maybe they realize it, but they've heard it so many times, it doesn't have the impact, impact anymore, or the effect. I think about how, until recently, sadly, Bob Ross was on Netflix. You know Bob Ross? The big hair, he had the happy trees, happy little accidents, he's painting all these things. Well, I would watch that, Calvin would watch that, and we watch it with Aaron. And we're three people watching the same program, but with two different motives. Erin is going to go paint all this stuff. She's going to use the Bob Ross method, and she's got the the Bob Ross paints with his face on them and everything, and she's doing all this stuff, and then she's taking the Bob Ross stuff and mixing it with more traditional painting and doing all these amazing things. Wow. Calvin and I are watching, just going, huh, wonder what that's going to look like. Oh, so that's how they do that. Okay, I got it. It's Interesting but we have no intention of actually doing these things that He's instructing us to do. I worry that many people in churches today, they hear week after week, the preachers stand up and equip and say, this is is what we must do in Jesus Christ, and we must make disciples. We We have to bring the gospel, and this is the way that we ought to be doing it, but have no intention. Just kind of sit there saying, huh. But if we're disciples then we'll disciple, right? That's just basic definition. Uh, the, this piano, I, I was told by the guy who, who uh, tuned it, it was looking really bad, and he said, go get this stuff called Old English. I said, I know Old English. We got a, we got a little boy in the house. We get scratches on things. He said, okay, you take it, you just rub it all over the thing. It'll make it look nice. The scratches kind of disappear. So I went to Meyer yesterday afternoon, and I bought a thing of Old English, and some really nice human had unscrewed the top and just set it back on top. So when I went to go buy it and I had it at an angle, the top fell off and right on my shorts. Dad shorts, but still. And I looked I at, oh man, that makes me mad. I got home. I said, Aaron, look what happened. These shorts are ruined. She said, maybe we can save them. I said, it's going to stain. You know how I know? I'm not talking about the lemon oil. This is the stain. If it doesn't stain, it's, it's, what is it? Stain, stains. If a fly doesn't fly, it's not a fly anymore. It's a walk, right? Flies, fly. stains, stains. Disciples, disciple. And if we don't disciple, what are we? If we don't follow him, and if we don't make disciples, these were his last words before he took off and trusted us to build the church and, and extend his kingdom. Go and make disciples of all nations. To be a disciple is to be one who makes disciples. One who helps people grow in the faith. One who encourages. One who teaches and and studies together. And one who tells those who are outside of the grace of Christ because they have not repented and turned to him. Flee to Jesus. Turn to him. Repent. Believe. And turn to God. I'm out of time, so let us go to the Lord now in prayer heavenly father we do thank you for this story this joyful story about a man who was begging and just about hopeless there at a temple gate called beautiful when his life felt anything but beautiful and lord we thank you that you are that narrow gate you told us i am the gate enter through me and lord you are far more beautiful than any temple gate could have been That You are the way that we enter into eternal life. Lord, I pray that each of us here would have our minds renewed and transformed. That we would daily repent and turn back to You. That, Lord, we would find ourselves being disciples and discipling. That, Lord, we would remember all of these things that Peter shared, especially that we who are sinners, that we who rejected and disowned and denied Your Son Jesus, have been born again, our sins washed away. Lord, what great news. Better news I cannot fathom. I pray, Lord, we would live this week in light of it. In your holy name we pray. Amen.